getting through the Fraser Valley can get messy, can get messy early as everybody has the same idea. You know what? We'll leave, we'll leave early to get on our our road trip. Uh, a lot of people do that and it gets busy much before uh, rush hour traditionally would start. Okay, so where you are going and what you are doing across this province has to come with caution. You need to be up to speed, not just with Drive BC, but also with BC wildfire services, unprecedented fires happening across this province. We are at a level four drought and it only goes as high as five. Five is the worst. And there is very little, if any, precipitation in the forecast. I was watching Mark Madriga this morning on Global Morning News, and he was showing how there might be some some spots uh, in the southern interior and in uh, in right exactly where we don't need thunderstorms and lightning uh, bubbling up over the course of this weekend. Our rainforest, guys, is dry. Our reserves, no, they're not completely tapped out. But if we don't use mindfully... They could quickly empty. So we've heard from municipal and provincial leaders on severity of our current state of drought and what it means for water supplies. Here's Metro Vancouver Committee Chair and Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody. I think we can count on seeing these kinds of restrictions every year with uh, the climates being warmer. Uh, We are taking steps at Metro Vancouver in the water district to make sure that Long term, I'm talking about 2050, 2060, 2070, there is a plentiful source of water. And then you have North Vancouver MLA, the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness. Here's Bowen Ma. As of today, 23 of our province's 34 water basins are in drought level four or drought level five classification. We are calling on everyone in BC, including residential and industrial water users, to reduce their water usage. Every drop counts. We're not used to this level of, of urgency. We see the signage. I don't know if you ever walk at Pacific Spirit Park or maybe you, you hike on the North Shore Mountains. Installed are these massive signs that says danger, fire, risk. They're huge. It's quite a jolt when you come around a corner used to being in a, a rather soaking wet rainforest and see that level of Please be mindful. Please be aware um, and, and be careful and cautious, especially over a long weekend when some people are thinking that it might all be a bunch of hype. It's not. This climate change, this drought that we are experiencing right now is very real. And I want to talk through just how the science uh, works here and how very real what we're dealing with is. And to do so, we're welcoming Dr. Yunus Alila, who is a professor in the Department of Forest Resources and Management at UBC for the program. Thank you for being with us today, doctor. I appreciate your time. Thanks, uh, Jody, for having me. So when we talk about the drought that we're experiencing here, we're not used to hearing that word. And maybe some, I know yesterday I had a number of people fill up my inbox at, at Jody at CKNW.com saying, I'm, I'm just going with the hype on needing to restrict water and that our reservoirs are 80% full. And people want to push back on this because it is rather terrifying to see the, the extremes we're seeing on the south coast in particular of BC, where we're not used to such things. Yes, uh, Jody, it's a new uh, unfortunate reality that we need to start getting used to it, uh, both the public as well as the government agencies at all levels. Uh, There are multiple factors that contribute to the severity of this year's drought in particular. Of course, the lack of rain is one of them. Uh, But the lingering effect of the 2022 drought has a lot to do with the severity of this particular year. The early spring heat wave that we've gotten melted all the snow earlier and we lost all that runoff down to the ocean as opposed to replenishing the groundwater. When all these factors coincide, Jody, it is a recipe for the most severe drought on record, and this is what we're experiencing. Our biggest problem, though, moving forward, at least that's what the science is telling us, whether the policymakers are going to consider that or not, that's another question, and I'll come back to it. The biggest problem is that global warming is making droughts of all levels of severity much more common over time. And this is the most unfortunate new climate realities. It is critical, however, to realize that uh, the severity and the more common occurrence of these droughts cannot just be blamed on global warming. I, I strongly believe that our land use 
forest management and our water management policies and regulations in this province all contributing factors to, the, to making the droughts more severe and more common. And as an expert in forest hydrology, I wanted to remind all of us that the excessive clear-cut logging, for instance, everywhere in the province can actually add salt to injuries. Why? Because uh, replanted trees and the cut blocks are consuming way more groundwater uh, than the old forest that used to be there. And the, the forest roads that are draping all of British Columbia that are used to access the timber on, intercept the groundwater uh, d- down, down the drains that are draining forest roads and connected to the stream network and down to the ocean, right? Yes. And on top of that, Jody, now we've got the wildfires that we had to deal with. Of course, the wildfire turns the upper crust of the soil um, into ash, all that organic material is now burned and turned into ash, the soil now is not able to infiltrate, uh, the water is not able to infiltrate into the soil and replenish the groundwater much needed during the dry period of the year, namely uh, uh, late summer and and, and in the fall uh, uh, as well, right? So um, the land after a wildfire act as a parking lot where runoff runs over the land and lost to the ocean quicker, that of course causes bigger floods, but it, 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 that, that runoff is not infiltrating again into, into the ground in order to replenish groundwater, and then the situation gets worse uh, as a result of the wildfire. Therefore, we need to brace ourselves in the coming years Um, uh, in the coming couple of years at least, because these wildfires are going to actually exacerbate the the severity of the the droughts. Basically, the other issue is that we are entering an El Nino phase, because we've been in in, in several years of La Nina, which are cooler and uh, wetter, supposedly. uh, But we are entering now an El Nino phase uh, uh, in the next several years, which are known to be even drier and, and warmer, right? So, so yeah. basically, basically we, we, we need to face um, the new uh, climate realities uh, uh, which are, you know, uh, creating these droughts but being exacerbated by um, uh, uh, land use, land management, and water management uh, uh, policies. And I think moving forward... All agencies need to actually coordinate to make sure that our policies uh, are in sync with um, the new, the new, the new climate uh, realities. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, continuing a fascinating conversation with Dr. Eunice Alila, a professor at the Department of Forest Resource Management at UBC. And doctor, prior to the break, you were laying out some of the issues that collectively see us in this. Um, unbelievable position of not just having to deal with the drought we're witnessing right here and now that is at a level four, a stage four, you can only go as high as five, but possibly having to face this long-term in years to come. And it's not just about climate change. That's not just the problem here. You laid out how it is, how we manage or lack of management with our forests. Uh, What needs to be done? I know this is a very complex conversation and I'm trying to find the simplistic sort of answer to it, but just to educate myself and our listener, what do you feel needs to change in order for us to manage what we face? Uh, Judy, what needs to be changing is to put an end to blaming it all on uh, climate change. Yes, uh, global warming is a now reality and most unfortunate reality that we, have ne- we need to live with, but we need to step back and look, okay, what is it that we're doing in terms of regulation and policy that could actually help uh, lessen the severity and the frequency uh, and common occurrence of these calamities and droughts and floods, etc. And forest management is one of them, but water resource management is another one. Land use management is another one. Let's for a moment talk about forest management. We have been a clear cutting uh, uh, we have basically forestry and forest management in this province have been equated to clear cutting clear cutting meaning you shave all the trees whether they are small or young or or big and they actually are after the big the big trees that have wood values but in the process clear cutting actually uh, 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 um, loses all the young trees 
and and then they go and replant the trees in these cut blocks, and uh, replanted the trees in the first uh, in the first uh, several decades are actually consuming more groundwater than the old forest that used to be there. Uh, yeah. This is the this is the metabolism of uh, of of of, uh, of trees basically. Younger trees uh, are known since antiquity that actually consume way more water from the ground, and that's at the expense of 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 the of of of, of runoff in the channels in the driest period of the year, in the end of the summer, in the fall, and the middle of the winter. Right, so that's one one mechanism via which the, the excessive clear cutting that has been happening over the province for the last uh, several decades, particularly for the last twenty years, you just need to fly over British Columbia and yes. then look at the how BC all over coastal and interior have been draped with the clear cut logging and excessive clear cut logging. The point here, here at the Faculty of Forestry, we teach our students, undergrad and grads, other alternative logging practices other yes. than clear cutting that are more eco friendly, more environmental friendly. Uh, and, and, and are less riskier in terms of these calamities of droughts and floods and landslides. And therefore, I urge those in charge in, in the provincial government and the First Nation now, because they are around the table deciding on how to actually manage the, the trees in the next five and ten years in the future, to actually consider more environmental-friendly logging practices in this province, such as the tree thinning, patch cutting, smaller patch yeah. cutting, um, uh, single tree selection. There are a wide range of eco-friendly uh, uh, logging practices that other countries have actually adopted. Right. And therefore, uh, in my opinion, if we do not now change course in terms of regulation and policy, the situation of these droughts is going to actually get worse. It's, it seems to me, doctor, that it feels like the... Uh, the umbrella blame for global warming gives some cover to the much more inexpensive and yet damaging clear-cutting practices in forestry. And obviously forestry is a, is a big industry in this province and an um, industry is important, but our political leaders need to make that change that you're referencing. And, and, and you're coming at it from a scientific perspective but having a more expensive way, correct me if I'm wrong, but having that more higher maintenance or co- more costly, but more environmentally gentle um, way of, of, of harvesting the big trees is something that it's not, it's not new. These are conversations we've heard over the years, but it's almost like global warming has given a, a, a bit of cover to that practice just continuing. Oh, yes. The global warming is being used as a scapegoat, and particularly by governments of all levels, and especially yeah. the provincial government. The counter-arguments that I've been receiving, yes, you're right, the counter-arguments that I've been receiving to my call and advocacy for the more environmentally logging practices is that, well, no, but that's an expensive logging practice. Okay, so, so at what expense do we like to get the, the wood in a cheap way, right? At what yeah. expense to the environment, to downstream communities? Right. Yeah. At what expense to the First Nations? Right. Yeah. And therefore, uh, if you want to go and log the way we have done in the last several decades, just don't don't paint it with the rigor of science because it's scientifically indefensible. Period. Right. If you want to follow the science and guide the management with 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 the science, that you need to take a closer look and uh, right and frankly stop brainwashing. Uh, the public uh, in thinking that uh, uh, t- 20 years after logging, uh, the regenerated uh, forest and the cut block has actually recovered because it did not. Right. It takes it 60 not. to 80 years in the interior, for instance, for the forest, for the replanted trees to regain its hydrologic functionality, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, we've, we've got several mechanisms in the current practice of forest management and clear-cut logging that actually exacerbate uh, the, the severity of the droughts and the common occurrence of the drought, uh, of the droughts. Yeah. I mentioned one of them, that is the region is actually consuming more groundwater, yeah. but also the forest roads intercept a lot of uh, uh, g- groundwater uh, down the ditches that are draining the roads, and the ditches the are actually yeah. 
go, uh, draining with culverts connecting to the existing channel network, and it's up to the ocean quickly, right? right but on right. the coast in particular, Jody, Jody when the snow f- falls on the canopy, on the old canopy, uh, it falls in the form of wet snow, and that wet snow melts in the form of melted drip. And when the melted drip falls under the canopy, the old forest, it recharges the groundwater. Now, if you take the, the old forest through clear cutting, you end up depriving the, the ground from being recharged, right? You know what, Dr. Doctor Alila, I could talk to you all afternoon. You've just educated us so well. I'm sorry we're out of time here. Thank you for your time. I definitely would like to circle back and speak with you again. I, I feel like you've just laid something very important on the table. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you for having me. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Time to have a conversation that can be difficult for some people and and an absolute touchstone for others. Not here to debate or discuss the whys and why nots of medical assistance in dying, but rather for those who might consider having made be a part of an advanced care plan or to have put into your will. Uh, to activate um, this in the event you find yourself in need of medical assistance in dying. And it is a very complex path. And yet there are some in our province who are rather masterful at explaining it. And my next guest is the latter. Dr. Stephanie Green has been on the program before. Uh, This is probably our 10th conversation, Dr. Green. You are the president of the Canadian Association, made assessors and providers, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here for the next little while to help guide us through with a little MADE 101. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I have to correct you. I am the current uh, founding but immediate past president of the Canadian Association of MADE Assessors and Providers. All right. Yes. See? There you go. Uh, you're here to educate me, Dr. Green. I love that about you. But as a, as a co-founder of it, you have yes. definitely been at the forefront. Can you give, give our listener just some context as to your experience as a physician um, over the course of your career and what brought you to being involved in MAID? Sure. I'm, I'm trained as a family physician. I spent 10 years in general practice as we sometimes crudely say, cradle-to-grave medicine, a little bit of everything. I focused my practice on maternity and newborn care for over 20 years, and in 2016, when the law changed to allow for assisted dying in Canada, I was drawn to the topic, and I made the switch, and now 90% of my clinical work is in assisted dying and end-of-life care. I am, as you mentioned, the co-founder of the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. I'm one of the medical advisors to the BC Ministry of Health Made Oversight Committee and wear a number of different hats uh, in this work. So, Dr. Green, when people who oh, perhaps bounce along the top of the news cycle and, and see headlines that are shocking, um, mm. some believe that made is is being offered to or um, actually pushed upon people who suffer from depression or mental health issues and struggles. Um, there was a story about veteran services um, a number of months ago that certainly did a disservice to the actual process that exists around assessing and providing uh, made. Walk us through what the assessment process is really like. Sure. I, I'd just like to, to mention that I think I think Canadians would be rightly confused by the recent headlines that you mentioned. And luckily, our law is perfectly clear on who can and can't uh, be eligible for MAID. And the clinicians that do this work are well aware of what those rules are. So despite some of those headlines uh, suggesting things, uh, that is not always the case. So thank you for the question. Uh, in order to become eligible for an assisted death in Canada, it's very clear what needs to be what, what needs to happen, what needs to be true. A patient certainly needs to be over 18 years of age at this point in our law. Person needs to be eligible for Canadian government-funded health care, so you can't come from another country. And they certainly need to give a voluntary request uh, for this care. No one can encourage them to do this or make this choice. It must be consistent with their values and their their statements. The person also needs to have capacity to make this decision, meaning they understand what's wrong with them, they understand their treatment options, they understand 
the repercussions of their uh, request and its outcome and that it's final. So all of that needs to be true. And uh, what people mostly spent time on is um, what our law says, that the patient needs to have what's known as a grievous and irremediable condition. And what does that mean? It means that the patient has uh, what is a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability that has put them in what we call an advanced state, not a small way, but an advanced state of decline in their function, in their capability, and that they are suffering in a way that they deem is intolerable and enduring and cannot be relieved in any way that they find acceptable. So all of those things need to be true to be eligible to have an assisted death in this country. So can one put... Uh, the want for made in their advanced care plan, can it be done before a diagnosis of a terminal illness or, or a, an, an, an illness or an impact, as you just described? So in a word, no. Uh, advanced directives in British Columbia will allow uh, people to speak for themselves if they find themselves in a situation where they can't speak for themselves. So you can write down uh, legally things like if I am on life-sustaining treatment for X many days, weeks, or months, and it looks irreversible and everybody agrees, and I would want you to remove life-sustaining treatment. You can make all kinds of decisions for yourself that should be, uh, should be followed. But the one thing you cannot do is request made in advance of qualifying for it. Okay, that's an important piece of this because there are many people also asking about what happens with the with the rise in Alzheimer's and dementia, people living longer. Uh, many mm. people saying, I don't want to live like that. What about that? Is, is, is yeah. Alzheimer's, as, as an example, something that falls into the category of the disease that, that while still with capacity, one could ask for made? Yeah, so a really important question. Thanks. I, I, you know, I've, I've given a lot of talks and everybody asks about dementia, as they should, as there's a tsunami of dementia coming to our continent. Um, yeah. to, so to be clear, the law has never excluded anyone with dementia or something like Alzheimer's from accessing this care, but they still need to meet all the criteria. And it's tricky because how can you be in an advanced state of decline and still have capacity to make this decision. So I'm just, rather than getting into the nuance of that, I'm going to say that it is possible for some people with Alzheimer's or dementing diseases to qualify under our current law. It's complicated. Not every patient will be found eligible, but there are ways that that can happen under our current law. What you're really getting at, though, Jody, is what, what most Canadians want is the ability to make what we call an advanced request. For me, right. meaning, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to have dementia or I already have dementia and I'm at a place now where I can see what's coming down the pipe. And when I hit criteria A, B and C, when those things are true, I would prefer an assisted death. That's called an advanced request for made. That is currently not legal in this country. However, Quebec, the province of Quebec, which has always been leading the way on social changes around these matters, has recently, in June of 2023, so just two months ago, passed legislation that will, in fact, allow advanced requests for assisted dying, but they've, taken, they've given themselves two years to implement that program. And it's my suspicion that once that comes into effect, there will be a fair bit of pressure on our federal government to harmonize what's happening in Quebec with what Canadians and the rest of Canada want. So do I think it's coming? I do, but I don't know when exactly. I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when. But currently, to be clear, that is not legal anywhere else in this country. We're with Dr. Stephanie Green. I want to point out that Dr. Green has a website. Uh, it's Stephanie with an F, S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E, stephaniegreen.com. You've written books on this. You're accessible on your website at stephaniegreen.com and clearly um, so well-versed on the subject matter. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you every time we talk, Stephanie. I learned something from you. I want to go back to Wonderful. the generalities around MADE here. So generally speaking, mm. when somebody is like, okay, I've, I've, I've decided that I would like this as an option, 
How mm-hmm. long should they expect that process might take from first ca- contact, going to your website, finding that document that needs to be filed into the health authority and mm-hmm. activate? Give us give us an idea of the process and how long it takes. Well, it's so individual. It, it's impossible to answer that question generically okay. because every case and every person and every situation is so unique. So if the, if the case is... But I'll flippantly say straightforward, clearly, what we call a track one patient whose death is reasonably foreseeable, who's nearing end of life. I mean, in that kind of relatively straightforward case, there's no waiting periods or anything. So once the paperwork is done and the assessments are done, and there need to be two of them independently, but two different clinicians. I mean, it's a very rigorous system, so it's not yeah. like immediate. But the paperwork is done, the assessments are done. There's no waiting period after that. So people could proceed, if they feel the need to, fairly quickly. Uh, that could be days or weeks or months, depending on the situation. And if, being if a mind- patient is... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and being mindful of when you're filling out the documents, it's, it's important to know who can and cannot witness or sign a document. Yes, important. Exactly. So when someone makes a request for assisted dying, it does need to be in writing on the provincial form. That request needs to be witnessed by an independent person. So any, I mean, any adult could witness that signature, but they can't be people who will benefit in any way from the death of the patient. So generally, I steer my, my patients away from any family members, uh, from any healthcare providers providing them care, those people really shouldn't be witnessing the signature, even though sometimes they maybe could or maybe couldn't. Best to just have a friend, a friendly stranger, a neighbor, uh, a healthcare provider who's not involved in your care. That kind of person uh, could easily witness the signature of the request. Now, it is between the patient and the made physician, right? Like this isn't a family. Uh, or or group decision ultimately once the paperwork is filed it's very personal between the individual and and the physician isn't it is it not yeah the the law in this country recognizes the patient's rights uh to you know as kind of primal so so it is the patient's uh it is the patient who makes the request it is the patient who drives whether this care will will happen or not and although you know, as clinicians, we always, always want to include the family in the process. We want their opinion. We want to answer their questions. We want to get them on board with what's happening. We want to smooth out any uh, differences of opinions. We always invite them in to the process when the patient has given us permission to do so, which we do require, right. of course. But in the end, the decision to proceed or not is is up to the patient, according to the law. There are some patients who may uh, specifically want it to be a group decision with their family, but most patients don't. And, uh, and I take my bidding from the patient, not from the family in the end. Yeah. Right. And how does a, a made physician get paired with a patient? Well, uh, each health authority has their own kind of direct approach to this. But generally speaking, a patient would uh, seek information or fill out the request and then contact the local health authorities made coordination center. That program then, that office, that made coordination center will then help pair them with a clinician who can do an assessment or provision of MAID. So it's slightly different in each health authority, but there is a MAID coordination office in each health authority in British Columbia, and that's the go-to. That's where the contact uh, first is made with the program. We're with Dr. Stephanie Green, uh, co-founder and past president of Canadian Association Made Assessors and Providers. You can find Dr. Green at stephaniegreen.com. That's Stephanie with an F. Stephaniegreen.com is the website. You've literally written the book on this. Um, Stephanie, when it comes to um, people who get through the process, the assessment, have made... on record, they're, they're, they're dealing with their situation, whatever it might be, and they've gone through the process. Is it quite common for it to just be um, put there and in, in a, in a source of relief for the patient and, and perhaps never used? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point. I have found myself, having done this for seven years now, um, what I find is that when I tell someone they've been through, you know, they've been through that rigorous process, and I finally tell them that they're eligible for this yeah. care, that does, I mean, that's really what I do is I assess their eligibility. I don't decide if they're going to proceed or when it's going to be happening or who's going to be with them. That's, that's all up to the patient. So when I tell a patient that they're eligible, 
I see a physical and emotional change in the patient immediately where they relax, they express gratitude for the option. They're often very, very relieved. Um, I think there's a therapeutic benefit to that conversation. I'd say 80% of, the, of what I do for my patients is empowering them with this choice. That doesn't mean they have to proceed, though. As I mentioned, it's up to them whether that provi- you know, provides enough reduction in suffering that they're okay for a little bit longer or whether they just feel, okay, it's time to proceed. That's really up to the patient. So it's, it's a little different in everyone. I would say most people proceed uh, quite quickly, but there are some who find just knowing that they have the choice to be relief enough to give them the, the will to, to go on a little bit longer. Very much appreciate your expertise here, Dr. Green, and, and you always answer the call when we do uh, reach out. Um, and, and I do encourage everyone who is interested on the subject matter to go to stephaniegreen.com and, and have a little look around at the facts that are laid out there because it really is extraordinary once you get educated on it. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate you. My pleasure. You take care. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and I'm a bit of a unicorn when it comes to short-term rentals. I've never done one. I've actually never been an Airbnb user. I've never done a Verbo. None of it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to navigate it. Now, that said, I have friends who run them out of their uh, suites in their house. I have friends who have rentals that they've flipped into um, Airbnbs way back when I also know people who would never consider even staying in a hotel again because they love short-term rentals so very much, but it can be one end of the spectrum happiness or the other end of the spectrum horror, horror show, depend on which end you are at, whether you're, um, a, a destination for people or use these as a destination. So it can be hit and miss, I understand, using these short-term rentals for travel. Our producer, Corey Latondra, and I, we were talking about the tips and tricks and pitfalls. He's used them quite a bit, and I'm going to talk to Corey in a minute, but I want to help us all adapt to the modern ways of travel. And and to do that, we're going to connect now with the CEO of Inspired Travel Group, Danielle Riddle, is our guest. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Give me some four or some four one one, or if you will, short term rental one oh one. What are the biggest tips or tricks or mistakes you see people make when it comes to using the, the services by Airbnb, Verbo, and and so many others? Well, look, I think the obvious pros of using one of these properties is their affordability. They're often such a huge financial benefit for people when they compare them to hotels, and they tend to give you more bang for your buck. Essentially, that's what people are looking at, and also the space. Um, it's great for groups. Uh, so if you like to have something a little bit different and maybe unique and even immersive, so to speak, you get a sense of living like a local, which is a really sought after type of experience. Now, they can offer great options for you and very different experiences to a hotel, but it's really important at the same time to be aware of the pitfalls because there are certainly some that we need to be considerate of. And I would say the biggest one is the cancellation terms. Um, now, in saying this, both the owner and the visitor they have they have like their rights in their own in their own right. So, uh, just like a, a guest can cancel late notice, so can an owner. But the issue I think for the visitor is that when an owner does cancel, they can do this up to check in, and really there isn't a lot of recourse for the for the visitor. So, you know, whether or not they get a slap on the wrist for this from Airbnb, ultimately the guest is still stuck with no accommodation. So it's really, really important that, you know, you become, you're aware that this can happen because if you book a city in the height of summer when it's fully booked out and this happens to you, it can be quite a nightmare. So we definitely need to be aware of that. And so I mean, how, I think also... How does one do that? Can sorry. you, can you, sorry, take me through the layman's terms of that. So when I'm booking, what am I uh-huh. looking out for with regard to that? Because it, it, it changes with each host. Is that what you're saying? The cancellation terms can be set by the host. Right, However, okay. Okay. if they cancel altogether with you, 
close to your arrival, there is there is a stipulated um, recourse that they will get a slap on the wrist or whatever will happen with them. But if you're the traveller, you are just stuck with no accommodation. So there's never 100% guaranteed protection with short-term rentals. It's just not possible. And the reason why it, it makes it risky, and I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give people is to do their research and to really weigh up these pros and cons. You know, there is a risk involved when it comes to short-term rental accommodation as opposed to traditional methods of booking travel. Well, that's a really great piece of advice right there. Now, when it comes to being a host, um, what are you uh-huh. looking out for in when when having people book in is there a rating system i'm sorry to be such a novice but i'm sure there's people like me that have never done this before if is there a rating system for the incoming people that you can say okay they've stayed at another short term rental and they were good there you know they didn't break anything they left it as they found it or they you know yeah again it's a little bit by beware on both sides right because yeah. it's the the airbnb or the verbo they're acting as a middleman They're simply just providing this facility for you to either rent out your property or for you to go and rent a property. And so the risk Mm. is on both equally. And it it really is just a bit of a, you just got to hope for the best. Now, as a visitor, you have the assurance of, and what I would say to people, the best thing that you can do is read the reviews of the property but particularly look for the negative reviews because it's always important. There will be one or two negative reviews such as life and that almost makes you realise that it's real as well, it's bona fide, but understand what the negative reviews are because that will help guide you in what's going to be the best choice for you. So don't just go into it, you know, really without thinking or forethought. You need to do your research and you have to be prepared to, spend time planning your travel like travel arranging is such a tedious and cumbersome activity and I think a lot of people it's become very easy with these with these booking resources however a lot of people don't don't realize the risks and then when they get caught up in it it's devastating you know they've saved up for this it's their kind of hopes and dreams and they've they've saved their money and all of a sudden you know they've wound up in a place that was was sold very in a very misleading way by the photos or they get cancelled at the last minute, which, as you can imagine, would be just horrifying. Yeah, it would be devastating, for, especially when people are, perhaps are doing the one trip they've ever done in their entire lives, the dream trip. We're with Danielle Riddle, the CEO of Inspired Travel Group. Um, do you book as in your travel group? Do you do you mm-hmm. do you book through how how are Airbnbs and Verbos managed with, from from the travel world perspective? Has it become part of the mainstream? You know, there was a time you would book your your transportation, whether it be by air or by uh, road, by train, mm-hmm. train, plane, or automobile, and then hotels and and having an agent or a travel group um, help mm-hmm. you navigate all of that and 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 have the connections and the and the information. Yep. that's so important to keep it smooth are are we seeing those yep. short-term rentals come into the fold well this is quite an interesting point that you raise because licensed travel providers by using a licensed travel provider you avoid all the risk and the vulnerability when it comes to travel arrangements if right. you book something through a travel agent and it and it something happens or there's a mishap you're completely secure so, for example, if a hotel overbooks, which they do, you have to be reprotected by law. And so you'll never end up with the cost on you or being stuck out in the street. Whereas with Airbnb or Verbo, um, that's not the case. And so because of that reason, we as a licensed agent, we actually don't book through those facilities because there is no not enough assurance that because if you book through me, I'm obviously going to guarantee that for you. And so that would be my risk. I would be taking that risk on. Um, And because of that, it's just, especially we specialize in corporate travel as well. And you just cannot um, risk that those issues when it comes to that kind of travel. We need to know that it's like bona fide. 
there is just too many variables. And look, if you're, if you are going somewhere and it's not a particularly busy time or there's not an event on, I would say when it comes to major events, you have to be very careful because when major events happen in cities, owners of Airbnbs don't necessarily realize that event is happening and they have their property Mm. listed and you could book that six months in advance and two weeks out, they realize, hang on a minute, I can get four or five times the amount for this. They can cancel your booking and you're stuck with nothing. And then trying oh, to man. get accommodation during an event period. And that does unfortunately happen. And, you know, it's travel agents that often pick up the pieces of that. So right. I think you do have to be careful, but you just, it, again, like I said, the great, it's a great option and it, and they can provide so many pros. You just have to be prepared and you really have to be aware of the red flags and you just have to know that these types of accommodation they come with a buyer beware tag you know there are Mm -hmm. scams there are fake listings if something is looks too good to be true then the chances are it is um you know if you if you're looking for an airbnb you need to know the rough guide of what that price is going to be by doing your research and if something is like four times cheaper I wouldn't, uh, that'd be a red flag for me. I would right. be putting that one aside. So I think it's just everything comes down to doing your research and being very savvy. So if you're a person who doesn't want to deal with that or doesn't want the stress when they're going away to be worried that everything's going to work out right, then obviously you would think of enlisting the help of a professional and using those sort of a bona fide licensed provider. That's the difference, really. Such great information, Danielle. You're making me think about all of the, you know, this, look at the picture here. This looks fat. Look at the price. Why wouldn't we book this? We should go there. Okay. Now we're going to dig a little deeper because if it does sound too good to be true, it likely is. Plus what's the cancellation policy. And one of the um, reaching out to a host and they say, you know what, you're just going to need to pay that up front, but don't do it through the website. You just do a transfer for me. You know, those types of things as well. Scam. That that's yes, that's a huge worry. And that happens because they're trying to avoid the third party fee. Um, Mm. and again, this happens a lot now and certain destinations more than others, you'll see that, that you will see a listing on Airbnb and they will tell you to WhatsApp them at a different phone number to get real availability. That is often a scam and you have to be really careful to know that it does sound very alluring and it's hard not to think, oh, but I want to stay there. It looks so nice and I'd love, you know, everything's great about it. You really don't want to turn up with no property to go to because that, that's going to make your holiday an absolute, you know, terrible experience. And so it's all about like, you know, using that common sense, but also trying to eliminate the risks as much as you can in travel as well. Um, Especially if it's something really special that you've saved up for, you really don't want that becoming, you know, a burden and, and ruining your, your time. Right. Yeah. Danielle, you've been a great resource yeah. here. Danielle Riddle is the CEO of Inspired Travel Group. Do you have a website where people can find out more or, or contact you? We do. It's inspiredtravelgroup.ca. Very simple. Inspiredtravelgroup.ca. Thank you, Danielle. I hope we it talk is. again. Honestly, I've just made copious yeah. notes here. You've helped me a lot. Oh, there you, you go. Anytime. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Vanson for Mike Smith. Hopefully you are preparing to slide into the long weekend in a, in a fun and meaningful way. Some of us got to work. Some of us got to stay close to home, but we'll live vicariously through your social media posts that show us how you're getting out into nature. You're, you're enjoying your vacation home or you're in an Airbnb or a Verbo or a hotel or you're camping maybe somewhere for this long weekend. But the last thing you need to do is spend your time fending off pests that may have settled into where you're staying, if you know what I mean. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, you'll find yourself loving that the deer rolled through, but not so much loving the tick that lands on you. You know what I mean? Well, let's talk about some pests and what to do about them. Trina is, uh, Trina from, is a Vancouver, Vancouver area branch manager at Orkin and is our guest. Welcome, Trina. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to have you here to talk about some of the things we might have to contend with when we're uh, soaking in some natural beauty in beautiful British Columbia or or beyond. Uh, What are some of the most uh, common issues that you uh, help people with when it comes to Orkin? Okay. Um, Well, we help with rodents, mosquitoes, bed bugs, 
ant spiders, um, hornets and wasps, and also our fur-bearing friends, so raccoons and squirrels. Um, that's just a few uh, that we, we do help with. I want to start with the, honestly, I want to start with the mosquitoes and then we'll get to wasps and hornets, but but mosquitoes seem to be worse this year than they have been in years past. What can we do? We see you can wear this patch. You can burn this candle. You can (laughs) smoke this coil. I mean, what should we be doing to protect ourselves from mosquitoes? Yeah, you can do all that. But the main thing that you need to do with mosquitoes is remove any sort of standing water from outside your house. So if you Mm -hmm. have say, a bird waterer, and you're not changing the water um, enough, then we're going to get the mosquito larvae in there. Also, if you have, um, let's say, wet leaves lying around um, under some shrubbery and things like that, get those out of there as well, because mosquitoes need moisture to breed. And if you don't have the moisture, you don't have the mosquitoes. All right. Now, if we find a wasp or hornet's nest, what should we do? Call us. (laughs) (laughs) don't try to do what it says on youtube is what you're telling me trina don't knock it down with a broomstick and stomp on it no don't do that um when it comes to hornets and wasps you do want to call a professional especially at this time of year because the hornet and wasp nests are getting large i'm talking like basketball size some of them um i mean if you are brave enough to do them on your own for sure i mean go to your local hardware store and get some wasp spray but be very careful. Um, wasps can nest in the ground. They can nest in bushes. They can nest at the side of your house. They can nest um, even in your attic. Uh, so you just need yeah. to be careful with that. And and certainly be um, mindful of the time of day as well. I learned that r- lesson the hard way. I was gardening midday and I found myself a, a nest and I called in the professionals and mm-hmm. they said, yeah, we don't touch that until the sun goes down. You want them exactly in sleepy times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when um, you okay, got everyone inside. Where else should we inside. go? Either when you got everybody inside. Mm-hmm. Um, how about how about um, raccoons? They're so cute until they're attacking you, which can happen. They're they're they can be quite dangerous, can't they? Yeah. So again, a raccoon is something you don't want to tackle. Um, leave any sort of pet foods and things like that inside your house because that will attract the raccoons. Um, raccoons, however, can't be trapped um, between April and October 1st. So um, you can't have them get trapped and off of your property unless they're causing damage or they're in some sort of extreme distress. Um, then we can get a permit and help you out. But other than that, you're, you're stuck with them. I didn't know them. that. Yeah. Why is yeah. that? So, yeah. Um, well, because it's mating season. They're having their babies. We don't want to separate mama from the babies. Then all of a sudden we have right. to stress babies without their mamas. And so we, we want to take care of the raccoons. We like them. We just don't want them around our houses. No, I actually had a friend who whose dog was just recently a little a little chihuahua was was attacked by a raccoon and he tried to intervene and found himself at emergency uh, having been scratched and bitten and what have you. They are very um, motivated to protect their young as we all are. So not a blame game on the raccoons, but just, you know, when you think you can manage something on your own, you have to be mindful that these are wild animals. What about things like uh, ants and bed bugs and spiders and such when we're heading up to uh, places and spaces that we might, you know, be, be just camping out in and we, we find ourselves all itchy and whatnot. Like, should we be, are we looking out for stuff before we, you know, hop into that bed? Yes. So bed bugs are always something that people want to talk about. It's kind of like something that you're not supposed to look at, but you can't stop looking. Um, bed bugs, they, they don't want to hear about it, but they do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Trina. They're, um, you know, you're going to, bed bugs aren't particular about where they hitch a ride to or who they hitch a ride on or what bed they're in or what couch they're in. It's it's nothing to do with, um, you know, how much money you have or how fancy your place is or how fancy your place is not. Um, they're there to feed on you, the human. We are their main food source. Um, so when you step into an Airbnb or a hotel, do a check of the sheets. Um, you're going to be looking mainly up around the head area, um, for almost like a blackish fecal spotting, blackish to dark reddish color fecal spotting. And that's going to be your signs that there are bed bugs there. Um, and then you can pull the mattress tufts back and, 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 um, sort of at the back and underneath the mattress, you'll see little apple seed like bugs. Those are the bed bugs. 
Um, okay. And the nymphs are sort of like a opaque color until they have their first blood meal, but you can see them. Um, they are visible to the human eye. Um, so you just want to look for that. And then if you're not sure, and let's say you own an Airbnb, there are canine services where there are actually dogs trained to be able to pick up on even just one live viable um, bed bug egg. So you've Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Cool. I didn't know there was dogs that could say, of course there are. I mean, of course there are. <laughs> Um, what, what about, uh, birds? I just, one more before I let you go, because there've been lots of concerns over bird flu and, you know, people saying don't, don't feed birds on mass, let them, they're going to find their own way. Having a, having a bird bath, not recommended at this time. Um, what do we know on that front? Well, birds, um, it comes down to, again, having deterrence around for the birds. Um, you can do um, bird spiking. Sometimes people will hang sort of, um, you can get balloons that will scare them away. Um, and again, yeah, if you have your bird feeders and your bird waterers, you're going to be attracting birds, but not necessarily right. the pest type birds. We're talking about starlings, pigeons, things like that. Um, if you find an old abandoned bird nest, let's say on the side of your commercial building or even on the side of your house, make sure um, there are no eggs or live birds in there at all. And if it's an old abandoned one, get it removed because bir- most birds, actually all birds, will carry bird mites. And bird mites will, uh, when, the abandoned, when the nest is abandoned, will start to move out to look for a blood meal. And they will actually wow. move into your commercial building or your house and start to bite people. And it's, they really give you some itchy bites. That is not great. Mm-hmm. Okay, and one, sorry, I said that was my last thing, but I do want to ask about the stink bugs. We're seeing them everywhere. You know, they, uh, they, they felt like they were here and en masse and stayed forever. I had never seen so many in my life as I did this season. Yeah, so stink bugs, again, they're an occasional invader. Um, so, yeah, we, we do have been seeing a lot of them, and especially at certain times of year. Um, so you want to keep any sort of trees and shrubberies and things like that cut back from the side of your house. Stink bugs don't want to live in their house. They don't want to be in your house. Um, right. So just make they're sure you're looking for a way out. They are. They don't want to be there. That's not somewhere where they're going to be able to thrive. Um, so just right. make sure you have all your screens sealed up, your windows closed. And, uh, you know, you can always get, um, you know, a regular pest control visit um, and have somebody just, um, you know, treat the exterior of your house for, for outdoor dooryard pests, such as stink bugs, and sort of prevent them from being able to get close to your house. Trina from, okay, Vancouver Area Branch Manager at Orkin. How do people find you if they're like, I need a Trina in my life? <laughs> you can email me at tfrom at orkincanada.com. Um, we also have a website, uh, orkincanada.com. Um, um, and um, you can also email our uh, office, coquitlam at orkincanada.com. Perfect. Trina, thanks for your time today. That was fun. You bet. Thanks for having me.